Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. It is our last shows of the decade, Courtney. Well, at least it's our like shows about the decade. Uh, I'm Ben Rothenberg. You're Courtney Nguyen. And we're about to look back on the decade that was tennis players in the 2010s. What a decade. What a decade it was. The entirety <laughs> of No Challenges Remaining took place in the 2010s. So it's pretty good by us for that one limited metric. We're going to do two sort of lists, our top 10 men and women of the decade and the adju- the criteria for this is entirely subjective we should be clear this is not like a little bit like when we did our list uh, earlier this year of the top 10 most important women in tennis history the word we're using for this we decided on is defining players of the decade for men and women so like the players who are the speak to most speak the most to what this decade was in tennis so i hope hopefully that makes sense and hopefully we can explain that in our picks, and I'm sure you'll, listeners at home will agree, disagree, roll your eyes at some picks, be aghast at some snubs and whatnot, and overall just look back at the decade that was, because I think it was a pretty interesting decade. And our two lists, we will say, the men's and women's lists, are very, they were very different projects making these two lists. How are you feeling before we start, Courtney? Um, I'm feeling good about it. I, I think that, you know, as we know, I mean, lists are made to be debated, they're yeah. not made to be definitive and biases go into it because a lot of it, obviously, especially when it comes to tennis, becomes like how you uh, how you processed it at the time, how, you, you know, for me, you know, putting together the men's list was so different than putting together the women's list because halfway through the decade, I stopped covering the men, you yeah. know, so I, I was very much enmeshed, you know, for the first five years of the 2010s in the men's game. Um, after that, it became a little bit more of enjoying it as a fan. So going from being a reporter to just enjoying it just like for the hilarity of it all, <laughs> um, more so than not. So I think in that way, and so in knowing that that was going to be my bias, I did go out of my way to like bolster my thoughts with, with numbers and statistics and things like that um, with empirical metrics. Whereas for the women, um, you know, as I've lived it, <laughs> um, it, it whether as a reporter, uh, you know, for the first five years of the decade when I was with Sports Illustrated or as a writer for the tour the last five years, um, you know, it, it, it was a much more difficult list to put together for a variety of reasons, partially because, you know, there just comes a point where obviously within my role at the tour, you become kind of so close to it yeah. that it, it becomes hard to step back and... Um, and really take an objective assessment. Uh, but at the same time, also because, as you mentioned in, in before, the, the thematic way that the, the ATP, the men's game and the women's game, because I don't want to limit it to just the tours, but the men's game and the women's game, right. how they played out was complete opposites. They were absolute yin and yang, where you had, you know, for the men's game, uh, a decade defined by a select amount of dominance. And you had on the women's game a, a, a decade that was for the most part, although we'll talk about why there's caveats to this statement, uh, 2010 was not defined by dominance. Um, so, and before people get mad about that, trust me, I'll explain later. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it, was, it was very, very different. And I don't know about you, but for me, I found the women's list to be so much more difficult to put together. Yeah. And it was one of those where by the end of it, 
once I looked at my list, I'm like, I'm happy with my list. I know that there's people that are not on my list that people are gonna be like, what? But also, I also know that they're like, I could probably look at 20 other people's different lists and be like, yeah, you're right. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Whereas the men's, I really do feel like it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot more uh, defined, a lot more congealed. I mean, we're making these lists, I think, also having now consumed so many best of the decade or movies of the decade or whatever kind of lists in this end of this final month of the 120 months of this decade. Uh, so I feel like we're like at this point, it's kind of good doing it later in the sequence. I feel like I understand list making better than I did before. And I've heard conversations about lists and I I like lists and they're, you know, they're harmless and stuff. And like, you're right. I think there are so many multiple right answers to these things like there's almost nobody honestly who you could come up with for your list that you couldn't make a persuasive argument for if you wanted to right and, and that's yeah. that's hyperbolic obviously but like you could make you could state the right argument for why so and so was important to you yeah and i would i would hear it for almost anybody yeah and I, and i also think too i mean like you and i have don't really know who's on each of our lists or ordinal rankings or anything like that we've come to it kind of separately, but I will say just because I don't know kind of like what metrics you used, but for myself, the ordinal ranking, because like you said, like I've read so many, you know, end of decade top 10 lists or whatever, like the ordinal ranking I've kind of, yes, it applies generally, like mm -hmm. I'm trying to go from 10 to one, but if we're gonna sit there and argue seven versus eight, or five yeah. versus four, I'm not here for it. I didn't try it. I didn't sit there and be like, well, you know what I mean? Like this is, so for me, the ordinal, it, it's far more accurate for me to say like, these are the 10 most defining and like, but not necessarily in a descending order um, or ascending order, whichever. But, um, but I, we, you know, we put them in order to put them in order, but yeah. I'm curious, yeah, I did put them in order, which is different than the most important women of the decade list, which was not in order. Um, as we did it. Right. But, I'm um, sorry, of, of most important women of women's tennis history. But I'm interested to see how Trick Talk, like I said, we don't know. I asked, We asked a couple cagey questions to each other to sort of, to sort of meet assess out what we're going to do for our honorable mentions. And we're going to start with the dudes, I believe, here. Just talking about people who we want to give a shout out to for being part of the decade who did not make it onto our lists. And these are not necessarily people who came in 11th and 12th on our list, but somebody just who feels representative or interesting. I have two for the men who are going to do in this episode. My first one is going to be Gail Moffies, who I think had this, re who was, I think, the most entertaining and fun and, like, universally liked player of the 2010s. Moffies was, I think, probably the most universally liked and popular and fun player of the decade, who would pack a stadium almost anywhere and get a group of rabid fans there but then who also didn't really ever have a hand in who won the trophies almost any given big week and i kind of wish there were more players who were allowed to be gail monfils and i think gail monfils was met with a lot of frustration a lot of times and i think people would say he probably had a disappointing decade some people but at the same time he was super super fun and super amiable and just a really positive presence on tour um so not one of the defining ones per se but somebody who i just think you know, he was around in the, in the previous decade, too. And we, that's something we might talk about in these lists. Like, who who we considered was actually more of a 2000s player, of a noughts player, than a, than a teens player. And then the other, my other auto mention goes to Stefano Tsitsipas, who I think just 
for me, like, came on, like, too late in the decade for me to really know what his impact is. I mean, he wasn't really a factor on tour. It wasn't in the top 10 for the first time until this year, until 2019. And he did so many things that felt very interesting of this time, being a, a YouTube vlogger and stuff like that, and being, you know, tweeting sort of inspirational-ish quotes that were unsourced and whatever, and and his energy and everything like that. But I just feel like with Stefano, it's, it's such an incomplete grade, and I wouldn't know how to sum him up and his importance yet. Like, I fully expect and hope that he will be one of the t- 10 defining players of the 20s. Feels weird saying that as a decade again. But, uh, yeah, but I, I wasn't quite sure where to put him on my top 10 for this decade, so I left him off as well. Yeah, I, I love those picks um, in terms of honorable mentions. They both also did not make... Uh, my top 10, but I would absolutely support both of them as being, you know, part of the conversation in terms of um, uh, of the 2010s and, and for slightly different reasons. For Montfils, I think that he was, the argument to put him in the top 10 is he was the fun player. He was yeah. the player that made tennis seem fun. Uh, and I know that that sounds like it's a slight to everyone else, but let's face it, when Gael played, like, you know, especially big matches, you tuned in and you wanted to see what was going to happen and what shots he could make. And, you know, somebody who's going to dominate or should dominate the season or the decade ending hot shot list should be a player that's in the discussion, right? I mean, um, this guy got tennis on Sports Center. I mean, that's what, you know, is is massive about Gael and just his spirit and his energy. And he's such a nice guy. But um, so I really liked that with Gael. With Stefanos, I didn't put him in my top 10 only because he it's so late. It, yeah, you know, his exactly. surge came so late in the decade. But the argument that I would make as to and maybe this is one of those like, you know, you and I have obviously been going back and forth a lot about films. And maybe it's one of those things where it's like this film and this player kind of, I won't know, as you said, what the impact is. I can't say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of the best films of the decade. It's just too close. I need time away from it to look back, you know? So I think with Stefanos, that's definitely the case. But I will, the argument that I would make for Stefanos being in the top 10, um, and which is why, like, I really wanted to put him in my top 10, was that he's the first, well, will I say first? Because maybe this is actually wrong. But it felt true, but now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's not. <laughs> but I'm just going to throw it out there, and, and when it comes later to another player, maybe I'll correct myself. But Stefanos feels like the first like millennial tennis player, like truly millennial tennis player, like with the vlogging and kind of being quirky and in his own head and, and in his own um, having zero, um, I don't know, desire to kind of be part of the larger, like to blend in or to fit in, you know, like he's such an iconoclast and he seems to either A, be unaware of it or B, not care, right? That that like, that yeah, that sometimes he's a bit of a punchline and things like that. And people think he's quote unquote weird and stuff. I adore him as everybody knows. I know Ben does as well. And we love that about him. But there's something about that that felt very quote unquote next gen. So there's something about that that felt so different than the players who had come before him. And whether or not that means that he, maybe when we look back on it, it actually means that he's a product of the, the of like the child of the 2020s as opposed to the 2010s. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong on this because again, it's so late in the decade, but that would be my argument for Steph. I will say just get one quick definitional thing and I feel like I'm gonna say it a lot too, but it's debated like what a millennial is. I think a lot of people would classify Stephanos as a generation, a generation Z 
more than millennial. Because uh, like, because millennial so is like honestly like Andy Murray and Djokovic are in. And like, I'm a millennial by definition, born, born in '87. Um, and so, oh god. Yeah, it's weird, right? I think people usually yeah, just okay. casu- <laughs> casually use millennial to mean someone younger than me. I don't understand, but which is definitely, <laughs> which is definitely the Sitsipas definition of it. Very I'm, much. A guil- I'm guilty of that. Yeah. <laughs> whenever, um, I, I, whenever somebody's confusing, I'm like freaking millennials. Right. Exactly. But so yes. like, yeah, no, you're right. Like, he's he's more Gen Z. And our our new person of the year, Greta Thunberg, is like she's not a millennial. She's a Gen Z, whatever. So. Well, yeah, I figured it that much. Yeah. Okay. Um, who, who are your honorable mentions for the dudes? Yeah, a couple of my uh, honorable mentions for the men. Uh, one is the Bryan brothers. I know yep. that seems like a weird, like kind of like a ooh, like no, not at you all. Know, you went, you went doubles, but we forget because of the last five years. But for the first five years of this, this, this last decade, or sorry, we're still here this decade. Uh, they were the, the doubles team of the year, um, five years in a row. Uh, they absolutely dominated and they kept doubles in the spotlight and they made doubles a thing that you watched and especially maybe it's my bias of being an American, but they put butts in seats and made it fun and, and the way that they conducted themselves in kind of taking the doubles game to the fans, um, I think really, really does have a lasting impact. And ever since, you know, the injuries and they kind of, you know, took the foot off the gas pedal a little bit for a variety of different reasons, uh, you know, the doubles game with all due respect has been a little bit different when it comes to the spotlight you know and it doesn't mean that the game has gotten worse or anything like that if if arguably it's gotten better i mean it's 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 incredibly dynamic the the modern doubles game but you know doubles we know this on every on on both sides of the ledger it does need names to get people to really be passionate about it um but uh but yeah so i would i would give the bryans a big shout out to that like they 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 absolutely kept it in the mix. I think they kept it alive. I mean, like, I think doubles could have completely faded out and died. And honestly, like, there could have been talks of, I'm not over-dramatizing, I don't think. I think there could have been talks about, like, removing doubles from more tour events had the Bryans not been there. Yeah, keeping it True. Keeping it relevant. They were the only people who really made names themselves as crossover fans through doubles. I mean, the other moments were, like, at Indian Wells when other top single stars would pick up a doubles racket for the first once in a while or at the, or at the Grand Slams when... Uh, Venus and Serena would play doubles, something like that. I mean, but otherwise, it was the Bryans who were the torchbearers for and continuously. So, but there was there was a time when Bob was out and Mike played with Jack and stuff. But yeah, it, it's uh, there. The Bryans are an easy pick for sure, and somebody who was on my who was in my top twenty. I'll say when I was going through it, they, the Bryans got consideration for me for sure. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then another uh, uh, honorable mention for me uh, would be Marin Chilich. I just, he's not yeah. in my top 10. He's the only slam winner of the last decade that's not in my top 10 Same. for the guys. Um, and yeah, it, it, it feels harsh because I feel like in the, the, you know, the three players that we've previously discussed, um, we were kind of making an argument as to why they should be in the top 10. Whereas with Chilich, there's just, I just didn't feel like I needed him to tell the story of the decade. I, I didn't think that... Um, it just, it just didn't, yeah, it just, he just wasn't part of the tapestry from where I was sitting. And, um, and which is, which is rough, obviously, to say about, you know, a major champion, multiple Grand Slam finalists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, Chilich, Chilich is definitely up there uh, for me as an honorable mention. Uh, and then another one that is not on my list, although he was the one that I'm still 
debating dropping my current 10 and putting him instead, but as of right now, this is where it's at, so I'm locking it in, I guess, is, uh, is Zverev. Yeah, Zverev. He's somebody who I, I really feel probably should be in my top 10. He just isn't. So can we get into um, it? Because he's my number 10. Okay, let's go. So let's go, yeah. let's go with Zverev. Zverev is my number 10, so that, that segues in nicely. I mean, Zverev, yeah, he wasn't someone who was in my initial list, but as I was thinking about it, I mean, Zverev to me, what I was kind of going for with my 10 was like picking like a representative sample of players who sort of stood for things that happened this decade. And Zverev to me for sure is like the face of next gen having great, great talent and potential. And Zverev had more breakthrough results than any of the other people in his generation by a big amount. I mean, he won three masters titles and the world tour finals, which is almost somewhat spoiler alert, almost as many masters titles as my next like four lit picks on my list combined. Like, he was there scooping up some titles, but like, but he wasn't breaking through. And I think that in a really meaningful way, his inability to get going at Grand Slams really changed what the last half of this decade looked like. I mean, I think this could have been a very different looking decade had Zverev taken this sort of, it's your turn, you're next, you're the next star ball, and really consolidated it with a Grand Slam title or two. Um, he was someone we thought would break through and, and just didn't. And so it's an interesting phenomenon that way. I, I also think that Zverev is sort of like, I was trying to figure out how to define this, but he seems to be the one men's player who has like what I, what we think of as sort of traditional Gen Z or millennial like stands. Like he's this like kind of teen idol figure with like his floppy blonde hair huh. and stuff in the current era in this way that like <laughs> this is not a good analogy at all, but he's almost like ATP <laughs> ATP Timothy Chalamet or the closest thing oh there is. Oh my gosh! Not the right, not the right take at all. But like, but you know what I mean. Like he kind of feels take. like the closest thing there is to like that. The one who has probably the most. I haven't. I don't know how to count these things. It probably has like the most Tumblr accounts about him and stuff like that. People are like <laughs> fans of his dog and stuff like that. Like he just kind of occupies that sort of space in this way that no other men's tennis player I think really came close to doing because the other ones like the big four those felt like kind of traditional more old school fandoms but Zverev's group and I you know encountered them more talked about a couple episodes ago with his whole uh London health situation like seeing them sort of and how they talk about him and how they research him and how they feel about him and how they protect him uh, it was it was an interesting phenomenon. I was like, wow, you guys are kind of like the ATP equivalent of like the Beehive or something. It was it was strange <laughs> and interesting. And so, but and so Zverev is my number ten, and, and you know, and he and he kind of plays holes for a few other players of his generation. Maybe you know Sitsipas in there too, and a couple others. I don't want to say too many because I don't want to name who I haven't named yet. I don't want to give away who's not on my list. But yeah, he he kind of represents a, a demographic and the whole kind of next gen boat to me. I think. Yeah, I get that. And, and and that's why it was it was it felt weird to not put him on there. I think that the reasons why I ended up not doing so was that um he Yeah, I mean actually the Chalamet comparison is not bad. Thank you. <laughs> as as much as like I I mean honestly when it yeah, it explains a lot for me uh and how I feel about Sasha. But um I'm not a big Chalamet fan. Quite a peach, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you didn't have to bring it up. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, he, he there is, it's an interesting observation you make about his fandom, though, and, and kind of the way that the collective tennis establishment kind of treats him because there is this very pup, lost puppy dog thing 
that like not even lost, but just like golden retriever puppy thing. Six foot five puppy. That yeah. I feel, yeah, <laughs> that people kind of um, collectively have reacted to. You know, yeah, that he gets this level of protection that that and and kind of like oh Sasha oh he's trying oh you know that sort of thing that mm-hmm. a lot of the other players that are of his demographic don't get. Instead, of, I get your arguments about Sasha. Um, and I know that the player I'm about to mention is a little bit older, but I do, there's a argument for me, I kind of feel like Dominic was kind of in the mix there on the same sort of uh, Dominic team uh, on the same, um, yeah, yeah. for the same reasons. And, and the reason why I gave Dominic a little bit of an edge if I was going to like, and Dominic is not on my list. So, oh, um, but okay. the reason why I would have, no, he's not uh, on my list. My list is super weird. But um, <laughs> the reason why <laughs> I'm just warning people, I don't care. I don't care. I think it's because I've read too many lists. I'm just like over them now. And I'm just like, oh, whatever. But uh, but Dominic, is, it felt important to me because he was like the, the only player, the next player and only player that seems to like have watched Rafa and was like, mm. I can play like that. I could do that. Like, the, just the way that he hits its top spin, obviously he plays differently, 100%. But there's just something about Dominic that where, like, all, all, so many of the next-gen players look like people who grew up watching Roger um, right. and idolizing that, obviously, that style of game. Um, yeah, there was just something that was kind of admirable, I thought, of Dominic, that, like, it seemed like he was one that, like, grew up on a steady diet. Not that it's mutually exclusive, but just that there was something about him that, like, took on this challenge, which I think is probably not a challenge that many people can accept or take on because it's freaking difficult. But I, I, I'm gonna try and take what I can, like stroke-wise uh, and game-wise, like from Rafael Nadal. And I thought that was kind of like an interesting thing and why I find Dominic compelling in that way. Yeah, Dominic is not on my top 10, I will say. But, and he was the one I was sort of alluding to. I think Zverev could be swapped out for team in have fairly kind of holding the same place, but Zverev has, you know, won two more Masters and, you know, hasn't made any slam results. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing, but I think Zverev is, the one, who had, had, Zverev is the one who had more, like, hopes freighted on him and was more, like, the next big thing thing. His team is kind of interestingly, like, in his own generation, it feels like. He's, like, because I think the other people in team generation are, like, pwee, maybe. And so, like, it's, like, not... How old is Dominic now? Dominic is, I think, 25? Let me check. 25, 26, right? Let me look that up. Um, I hate, yeah, as I've joked before, but it's true. Player ages are tough because they change every year. Dominic is 26. Yeah, 26. So he kind of, I agree with you that he's kind of a man without a generation, and he reminds me on the women's side, she's a little bit older, but like of Simona. Mm -hmm. Like Simona also doesn't really have like an age compatriot group like there's almost kind of like it we've always had this discussion about how do you define uh generations in tennis because obviously a generation is much shorter in tennis but like yeah if you if you make it like a two-year window or a three-year window like there's not that many surrounding simona yeah simona's at least would kind of be like sloan is the one i can think of who's like with simona which is weird right like that's like a weird thing to think about but yeah so like i agree with you that dominic's kind of on his own so it, it it feels like you're right like that zverev is more representative of the whole next gen thing maybe than dominic as, as people are as people outside your window in Portland are honking their approval of our number ten pick, Courtney, who is your number ten? Oh my god, whatever. They're just excited that I'm about to mention who I'm about to mention. Go for it. Tell satisfy the people. They are eager. They've been waiting for your number ten, clamoring. My number ten. My number ten is Grigor Dimitrov. Ah, he is also on my list. 
Okay, because, okay, this, and, and because I just really feel that Grigor, and there are going to be other players who are in my top 10 list who like represent this idea, but Grigor represents on some level, right, that generation of player who, or that group of player, along with like Raonic, for example, who just, yeah, that lost boys generation, right? That they, that, that, that they call it on the Twitter um, of a guy who was, who had so much, who everybody identified, whether rightly or wrongly, of having like incredible talent. I'm not gonna say, you know, the nickname um, mm-hmm. and saw him as being, obviously he's photogenic, he's incredibly charming, he speaks perfect English, he's like a nice guy, like, obviously at the start of this decade like this is a kid that you, you know or you would have been like oh man if this guy breaks through oh he, he was, was the guy he was the guy he was the, the guy decade. yeah and i think that through him and through his ups and downs and his, his his trials and tribulations um his surges and then kind of pulled back and things like that it, it really does tell the story of that of that generation of player him milos k you know that whole group and so there, there's that aspect of it in terms of the on-court, but also just off-court. I mean, the, he, for everything that he was within tennis, you know, whether it was, you know, dating Maria or dating other celebrities or <laughs> um, just kind of being Grigor, his Instagram, which I still adore. That was great. You know, he, he just had this star power, this little twinkle in his eye. And I, and I still, to this day, love watching him play. Like, like he's one of those players that I, I do genuinely like to watch play, and I'm very happy when he does well. Um, but I think the primary reason that he made my list is because of that. He is the vessel for that story of the 2010s of why there is this, you know, you look at the, the, the ATP top 10 at the end of the decade, and there's a, there's a very large age gap that exists, yeah. right? In terms of like the, the people at the top and everyone else. and um, and it's because there was this one generation that that just uh, that just couldn't get it done, uh, you know, and they they kind of failed to bridge the gap. I, I'll, I'll mention I didn't him mean now. It to be a downer, but like no, 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 no. <laughs> That's completely right. I mean, Grigor is my number seven. Mazel. He is the Lost Boys poster child for me. I've, I only picked one of the Lost Boys. I picked Grigor, and he represents this like sort of like obvious transition that did not happen. This like obvious torch passing where like. They just never grabbed the torch. And that really defined the decade. I mean, the, the big four stayed the big four in large part because the Grigors never were able to unseat them. And and Grigor, so he represents in a sort of negative way, this hope that never really bore out. But then also you mentioned Grigor also to me is, and we I think nine of the, well, eight of the 10 people on my list, I think would easily agree with this, would match this. But like, he also represents the niceness of his generation. Like this was a uniformly super pleasant group of people almost across the board. Not all 10. I'm I'm not going to vouch for all 10 of them, but like they were almost (laughs) always like really, I'm not, but they were like really like easy and good and accommodating and nice to deal with. And, and, And for Grigor, it was always sort of like, Heartbreaking is too strong a word because Grigor was also so earnest that it made him so easy, I think maybe especially in the 2010s, to like be mocked and to become a punchline and to be like, to sort of people look at him, you know, sitting by the fireplace on his Instagram or whatever and just sort of point and laugh. But like, he was so pure and was just like so like, and we talked about him a bunch in the US Open episode we did recently mm. and your whole laundry story with him and stuff. But yeah, Grigor for me is like, he represents like this sort of alternate version of what the 2010 should have been on paper 
And then just by like, oh, here's the next generation coming up. It's going to be their turn. And then that it never really happened. And, you know, for all, I mean, he just did make a semifinals of the most recent Grand Slam 2019 U.S. Open. So Grigor's story may well not be done. His best may still be in front of him. So um, I'd be very happy to see Grigor continue to, to be a relevant, defining player in the 2020s. But, yeah, he was somebody who was on the radar beginning of the decade and was just sort of very closely watched and tracked and through highs and lows and there were plenty of both with Grigor so uh he is my number seven yeah and it, so we, we match on that one yeah there you go so we got one overlap um and I, I will say this when it comes to like the Grigors and there are a few other players on this list where you know for myself when I say oh they couldn't do it or like whatever it's you know there's 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 a flip side of that coin which is to say very likely I assume for Ben as well the players that top our list are really freaking good. Like, I mean, like, yeah. you know, like, so it's, I, it, I always wince a little bit, right? Like when you were just talking about Grigor and like, oh, he just couldn't get it done and what the decade should have been. And it's like, well, you know, when you have a trio of goats, right, like right, fucking right, pissing right, right, all over right. the field and declaring their territory. I don't know if goats do that. I just know dogs do that. Um, you know, like, you know, so there's a little bit of both. So I don't want it to come off as like, I'm being like negative on Grigor. Like, it's just... But to tell you do have to you do need him or someone of his ilk to tell the the story of 2010 um, and the people who kind of not suffered he didn't suffer but you know got the brunt end of the stick of you know this golden generation of players. I think I think he suffered in the sense that he got less than everyone thought he was going to wind up des- not deserving is a word I don't like in sports but like. With less than I think people thought he was going to get. Less than what the sort of tennis gods seemed to have allotted for him when he was coming up as a young, young prospect. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, my number nine. I think it's going to be my most controversial pick in the top ten. I'm not sure. I have two picks. I think it grows people off. But my number nine is John Isner. And John Isner, a couple things Dead why silence. Isner gets in my top ten. I know. But like John <laughs> Isner played. No, you know he was my honorable mention. He was, yeah, I, t- I talked to you about picking him out of mention, but he picked, okay, John, like, wound up changing the sport in a few key ways. He was, he played the defining match of the decade, I think, or the most memorable match of the decade, which is Isner Mahout, which was absurd in 2010. No match in tennis history will ever come anything close to that by design, because once Isner did it again in the semifinals of 2018 Wimbledon, they're like, yeah, we got to stop this. And and it was really just an Isner rule. Isner shifted the rule books. So when you look at, like, I can't think of any other player certainly this decade or almost ever who like really caused a change in how the rules are played, how you have to win and score a tennis match based on one player and how they annoyed everybody and how they just sort of broke things. He was sort of like a sanity check for the sport. He's also the best American player of this decade. And I think one of the defining traits of this decade in men's tennis is that American men were a non-factor for the first time in a decade of tennis. I mean, in the 2000s and the noughts, they won six Grand Slams. In the 90s, they won 21 Grand Slams, American men. So more than half of the 40 Grand Slams were won by Americans. And that Isner was the top American in this decade and didn't really ever come close to winning a Grand Slam, per se. He came close to making that one Wimbledon final, but otherwise no semifinals. Uh, yeah, he, that's sort of representative and defining to me. And he brings up, you know, sort of issues about how politics and sports mix, which is a very 2010s conversation to have, whether it's, you know, Kaepernick or whether it's on a different degree, Tennis Sangren or things like that we've had in tennis. And he didn't have any sort of the career consequences that a Kaepernick had with his things. I mean, largely because he's a white male, probably. Yeah, 
I, I liked watching Isner more than most people do because I like watching players. For some reason, I like watching like Dementia. But I like watching players with like limitations and seeing them sort of make the most of what they had. And in this era when so many players were so complete and played such similar styles, Isner stood out and stood above at, this, at 6'10 as a sort of interesting, non-standard baseline kind of grinder player. If I was going to be really trolly, which I wasn't feeling that trolly, but if I was going to be really trolly, instead of Isner, I would have picked Ryan Harrison. Because Ryan Harrison is almost like all these points, like, accelerated. <laughs> and ben. who's, like, stroppy and, like, a like a symbol. Do you have Harrison? No. Is that what you're saying? Okay, I was going to say. Yes. You sound excited. Ben. <laughs> I'm joking. But I'm just saying, like, <sighs> had I had I wanted to pick some, make a player that was just, like, American men's tennis falling short, Harrison is the face of that to me in this, in this generation. Because he was so talked about and did nothing. I mean, he, like, didn't make a second week of a slam ever, I'm pretty sure, and he was so stroppy, and yet, you know, and really drama-prone in this weird way, and constantly having controversies, and then nothing ever got done. Um, and the other thing about the 2010s also is that the, the men outshone the women on the drama front in this decade, which is still baffling to me. Did they? Um, but anyway. I guess. I think so. Yeah, yeah maybe for, you're right. Yeah, for maybe sure. Right. Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to hold on to that mantle. I'm just, like, thinking about it. <laughs> No, fair. I mean, no, Isner, Isner, yeah. Isner is my number nine. We'll, we'll, we'll always have 2012 London Olympics on Bravo, Ben. No, <laughs> God. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, I mean, like, seriously, though, like, if there's like Harrison, like, if I was doing the list, like, to be, like, I don't know if troll is the word for it, but like, I could make an argument that, like, when we're really not talking about who's the best, we're really not talking about who's rel- like who had results or who was like important. They like purely from a symbolic point of view. Harrison is this like exaggerated form Isner, but yeah, it was not a complete enough picture. It was a thought I had though, like I could go Harrison here, but I'm just not going to do that. I, I think that'd be like a little too ridiculous early in the list. Well, what, yeah, John well, Isner's my number nine. Yeah, I mean, I will say with John, one of the things in terms of being a game changer, um, and the reason why I was going to put him on the list, or not was going to, but like thought about it for a fleeting split second. Um, is that he also changed the perception of what you could do as a collegiate athlete on the ATP tour. I think oh, yeah, that's, totally true. that's a really significant thing. He's the most successful, right? Well, Blake? Yeah. No. Anderson. It, oh, and Anderson. Blake. Yeah, maybe those guys. But I feel like... But when, Isner played four years, yeah. Yeah, four years. And, and honestly, you know, came out in... No one really knew what this guy was going to be able to do on the tour, you know, and I'm sure John didn't know really either until he he beat Roddick and maybe f- found some self-belief there. But like, but I do think that there's a lot to be said about John. And one thing I give John a lot of credit for, and maybe I'm saying this only because I've just spent the day going off about the idea of people thinking that like your passion should be your job. One thing that I've really actually respected about John is that he has treated being a professional tennis player as his profession. There's never yeah. been this kind of sense of, like, um, I don't know. Not that he takes the romanticism of it, of being a professional athlete away. That's not what I'm saying at all. But he, he, he's such a pro. Like, he's just, you know, like, why would I go do this if I'm going to go make money doing this, right? Like, why would I go play the Olympics if I can go play Atlanta? Like, this is... And in a lot of ways, I really kind of respect that because... He's just, he's, he's, he's making, he knows his career is going to end at some point. He knows that he's so lucky in a lot, not lucky because he's worked really hard and obviously he deserves it, but like very um, fortunate to have the career that he's been able to have and earn as much money as he's been able to earn as a collegiate athlete playing ATP. And he's like, 
doing right by himself on it. I don't know. There's just a part of me that like I, I don't know. I weird I weirdly yeah. respect that. I, I I totally get that. I think the way I would say it maybe is that John to me like uniquely. This is not representative. It's not like just this is just talking about John more than why he's defining. But like he uniquely never seemed to have his tennis results tied up in his self worth. Yes, you know, like absolutely. He, was, he had a he very was, healthy connection relationship with the sport. There, absolutely, and was like very much like not like he would be disappointed after hard losses for sure and be like bummed. But you never felt like he was going to go sit around for months and feel bad about himself in this way. That's like very on tennis and like and I do think John like John talks a lot about like how jokes about like being more interested in college football and stuff than he is in tennis and there is some truth to that but also that's exaggerated by him a little bit i remember sitting near him and query at paris bercy i think i've told this story on the podcast before but near him and query when they were watching it was like there's not much to do at paris bercy besides watch the matches so they were on some outer court watching a match between robredo and uh goffin who was just like coming up at that point and they were like guessing every time like which way Roberto was going to serve like what his serve patterns were and like how they're typical of certain serve patterns of like Spanish guys and I was like really interested to it was like weird hearing Isner on this like super technical tactical breakdown of like Roberto serving when that's not the kind of thing you ever think that he gives a shit about the way he talks about tennis but like there is this way like he does do the work when it's required but also can check out and be like a normal guy and and this way yeah that I think you identified that well he he's has a healthy relationship with the sport that i think a lot of players would do well to emulate a lot of times too when it just becomes too all-encompassing and too emotional for people it's just not that yep nope for sure uh so going to my number nine yeah i mean emblematic again of a of a of a, of a set of player but um i chose him because of just the way that people talk about him and the respect that everybody has for him and yada yada. But uh, David Ferrer is my number nine. He's my number eight. Oh, there you go. He's my number eight, so that works, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, well, I mean, what can be said of David Ferrer that has not already been said? <laughs> uh, the terrier, hard worker, everybody, the ultimate pro, the consummate pro, the guy everybody should emulate, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Ferrer makes my list you know, because he is that that Sangha verdict, um, you know, Ferrer. Those that Gasquet, trio of even. player Gasquet, but but really that trio of player to me stands above because they were the top the perennial top teners who basically when we talk about a Grigor or a K or a Raonic or those other players or any other players that wanted to try and gate crash, they had to probably go through one of these guys at the round of sixteen or the quarterfinals to make it deep into an, a tournament. I feel like that trio of guys specifically, again, Ferrer, Sanga, and Burdick, they stopped an entire group of player from creating a level of chaos. They were the bouncers. And exactly. there was no bouncer that was like more effective and more well-respected than David Ferrer. And I think that, you know, obviously he, I'm not saying that he was like the, the ultimate model of hard work because obviously you have the Rothas and, and the Novaks and, you know, all these players that people emulate for the same reasons. But um, for what he did, for maximizing his career, for just being that indefatigable opponent that you had, that you just had to beat and um, that never gave you necessarily a match. I think that, that that's massive. Um, so, so, yeah, so I have Ferrer. Yeah. Uh, and his being the the primary of the or the spear tip of the uh, the three musketeers uh, at number nine. No, I have it number eight too. And just to follow up on that, like I mean, 
the bouncer thing you mentioned, but there was this double, as I defined bouncer, I think when I forget which one of us used it first in the show, but bouncer is like, you knock out the people who don't belong, but also you let the VIPs stroll right past you. And, <laughs> and like, and yes. he did that. He was so good at keeping more interesting players, honestly, out of the late rounds of Grand Slams and then showing up against some big four guy and being cannon fodder so frequently. And like, and that's to me, one of the interesting things about Ferrer is that like, he, he really kept the status quo going in that sense. And he was low key for that reason. Obviously, all the praise that you mentioned has been said, you know, constantly about Ferrer ad nauseum. And I won't argue with most of it, but like he became kind of low key one of the more polarizing players because like people, no one was like neutral on Ferrer. Either you like, exo- you know, ex- you know, what is the word? Extolled him and just like totally thought he was the personification of everything you wanted or you were Amy Feather off and you thought he was the absolute, you know, like pits of the world and just like a waste he, of space a, and time. And yeah, everything. he was a good like litmus test yeah, of, for like, fandom, you know, like of what you valued and what you liked about tennis as entertainment, as the thing yeah. that you like, if you wanted nonsense and chaos, then you could not stand up for air. Right. And if you watched it because you loved watching classy people shake hands and say nice things about each other and try real hard for every freaking ball and never tank a game or a match or a point, then you loved David Ferrer. Right. And it really, you know, and that 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 polarization of the fandom, I really feel you know, by the time we got to the end of the decade, I think that Ferrer was kind of taken for granted for a while there, of just being like, oh yeah, no, we, we like this. Like, we like, why, why, I don't know, how am I not gonna like a guy who works really hard yeah. and does the right things and blah, blah, And there was pushback on it, yeah. What, the pushback began, and then you started to see the entry into the ring of players that weren't scared to mix it up. And then that became, they became even more polarizing, but like, yeah, I mean, I think that, that Ferrer was kind of like an interesting initial, like way before any of the chaos began, but an initial litmus test for like fans of yeah. like, what do I like about the sport? And what do I want to celebrate? You know what I mean? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And and for me, I mean, I found myself alternately on both sides of it. There were times when I really, when I kind of did get on that frequency and really could sink my teeth into like his just sort of dog determination and there were other times where you know there were like there's one particular like australian open semi-final against Djokovic where he played it was a night session it was like such a non-contest and i was like this is just a waste of time having Freya out here honestly but there's even other players who are kind of in his weight class or like the smaller counter-punching kind of guys like diego schwartzman or even like a fanini who are like much more fun and much more showmanship for not that different of a product. But Ferrer had the sort of focus and that, you know, that is a real weapon. That is a real talent. Like, you know, people talked about how people talked about him like he was terrible at tennis. He was not. He had he had great hands. He had really good shots. And I, I push back on that part of the sort of Ferrer thing that it was all just based on hard work. Like, no, he was a supremely talented player. But one of his talents also was having that point in, point out focus, which so many of those other players um, just didn't. In, in this decade and, and older times too, you know, and especially even in this like kind of in this era of like, what is this next generation missing kind of conversations that came up as the gatekeepers got more and more entrenched and as the older generation had their hand on the on the chalice longer and longer in men's tennis. Ferrer was kind of a, a again, a litmus test of you could, you know, scoff at kids today when they didn't have the medal of a David Ferrer. Yeah, so he's my number eight, and I think he's he makes a lot of sense. And yeah, he's he's also my placeholder for Burdich and Sanga too. Like that's the one of this group I picked is, is Ferrer. 
So You're number eight. Should I do my number Please. eight then? Yeah. So that so yes. So my number eight is and probably I don't know. People can yell at me. Maybe this is too low for him. Whatever. Uh, is Stan Wawrinka? Mm. Yeah. That's my number five. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I have him there, and and obviously I can't really explain why he's there until I talk about the players who I ranked ahead of him. Um, but uh, but um, yeah, I have Stan at number eight because obviously he is a defining player. I mean, three majors, um, you know, and and was a stopper in in those finals. I mean, he he really plowed his way through, and was able to 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 assert himself, you know, kind of the a player that represents, you know, that late career bloom, which is something that I don't think people really thought was going to happen so long as Roger and Rafa and Novak were up there, right? Like, you know, like yeah. you, everybody was looking for the next young thing that was going to break through, right? The next guy that was going to step through the the Raonic rule, as our um, colleague, mm-hmm. our colleague Tom Tebbett called it, which is, you know, at some point, those th- those big guys... I thought that was our rule. I thought we made that up, not Tebbett. No, that was Tebbett. To me, at least, that's when it... Yeah? because yeah, he, he said, you know, who's going to be the next one to win a slam? And I was, and he was like, Raonich? And I was like, I don't know. This was like eight years ago, or five years ago. And I was like, I don't know, I remember man. the Raonich rule. I just don't remember Tebbett. Okay, anyway. Yeah, no. I said, I don't know, yeah. man. And he was like, well, somebody's got to win them when they're gone. And I was like, oh, yeah, fair point. Um... That was the first time I had thought about it for some reason. Anyways, so yeah, and so Stan kind of being that older player, also reinventing himself, um, you know, uh, yeah, the self-belief, all of that. Um, you know, you, you can't, in a, in, a, in a decade that was dominated by three slash four players, um, you know, it's hard to say that a guy who won three slams and came through against them uh, shouldn't be in the top 10. So that's my argument for him. Um, the reason why I put him at eight um, is primarily because, okay, but so what? Um, you know, he, he won the things and, and they were big wins. And yes, he's very much a part of the fabric of the decade. But what was, what, was there impact more than just, you know, wins and losses? Was there impact more than just, he has these three big trophies sitting in his foyer at his home? Um, because I tried to, I tried to look a little bit more like not just about what was on the court, but also off court. I don't know that anything really in the sport changed, um, necessarily because of Stan and what Stan did. I mean, so it's a record, it's a records book thing, but, but I'm not sure broader than that. Um, he changed things. And I think that the players that I ranked ahead of him did maybe a little bit more on that end, even if they maybe didn't do what he did on the court. Uh, so that's why I have Sam Bumberg at number eight. Yeah, I you kind of talked me, convinced me that I, I might have overinflated him at five. I mean, like, the thing is, like, he is the only person who, like, meaningfully, like, had a battering ram through the castle gates of the big four the entire decade and did it three times um, and did it in this, like, really cool kind of, like, show-stopping way in this, like, really emphatic, dramatic way. Uh, fashion with his game. I mean, like Medvedev, who was started to do it a little bit at the end of this year, like did it in this kind of like trolling, clever way. But Stan was just like manly and strong, and like just sort of like satisfying in that sense for what people kind of look for in in sports. And then, I mean, and then in 2019, he just also turned into like a shameless Instagram thirst trap in this very <laughs> emblematic of the 2010s way, which I give him 2010s points. It for. was very dad discovers Instagram and DMs, like you know, it's like oh, it was. <laughs> Yeah, that's I put Stan at five, but I I I can 
here, even though he's clearly by Grand Slam statistics, which we think of as the be all end all, clearly number five of this decade, like I can totally accept and listen to and probably agree with arguments that he's not quite that high because there's just, yeah, like what did he change? Like what conversations did he start? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's just, so. it's, it's a little tougher. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Once you start taking that into consideration, then I think that his, his portfolio Which is, kind of shrinks a little bit because it's not like he put Swiss tennis on the map. Duh. It's not like no. he <laughs> created more, um, you know, outside uh, non-tennis interest in the sport outside of his shorts. Which honestly, I'd, I'd rank his shorts higher than him, like <laughs> on the defining iconic list of the decade. But um, you know, and like for brief time, everybody was making fun of him for having a dad bod. Which I was like, what? Have you seen Stan? He doesn't have a dad bod. Um, it's just the ill-fitting Yannick's clothes. Yeah, that Yannick's shirt is like a box. But uh, yeah, All like little things like that. Bad on everybody. It's true. It's it's hard. To, it's hard to pull that stuff off. But uh, and then on top of that, like it's not like he brought in there was external sponsor interest, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah it, it, it made it, it made it a tough case once I started lining him up against the other people that I have ranked ahead of him. He so. didn't, he didn't even play, he didn't play Davis cup in French Switzerland <laughs> or not Davis cup, uh, labor cup. Like yeah, they didn't even I mean, have him there. <laughs> that, that may have not, I mean, I, obviously it's his decision, but that may have, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> it that was, was weird that, was that Stan did not play labor cup in Geneva, a tournament that's run by Roger. Yeah. I would love to hear the oral history on how that went down, is all I'm saying. All right. My number seven is Dimitrov. We already talked about Courtney. Who is your number seven? My number seven is Kaini Shikori. Ah, this was, he was a late cut from my list. He did not make my list, but he was, when I initially made my list, he was number six. And then I just kind of, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that Dimitrov covered K. So I'm curious how you think that K stands on his own here. For sure. And I get that 100% because, yes, you're right. It, he does cover it in terms of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Grigor does cover kind of the whole, that story. But one of the big things, and again, this is in contrast a little bit to kind of Stan, is that when you start to look, step back and you look at the ATP tour and you look at men's tennis and you look at kind of uh, the, inf the, the, the growing interest, um, but from Japan uh, and then further impacted into Asia, uh, because of what Kei Nishikori represents amongst kind of Asian tennis, despite not, I mean, I'm not saying, and do, and please do not lump them together, Chinese tennis, South uh, Korean tennis, and, and Japanese tennis. But what he does represent is a guy that like, you know, from the other Asian countries, these up and coming players could look at and say like, well, he's not built like Del Potro. And he's not built like, I mean, he's built like us. And he's doing it. And maybe... You know, we should we should figure out a new way. And he, in a lot of ways, he was kind of the male Lee Na because he, you know, went to Boletari's, got the training from the West, has based himself in the West and outside of Japan. And at the end of the day, like, isn't it isn't he like the number two most well paid player on the Forbes list, tennis player behind Probably. Roger? He's like number two or number three. I believe it. His endorsement portfolio is unbelievable. And the, the kicker for me with Kay, and again, all this is in combination with what I said about Grigor and that Lost Boys generation. But the kicker for Kay, who's the sponsor of the ATP Finals now? Yeah, Nito. Yeah. So, you know, and Rakuten has, has become far more involved in tennis. They were a big sponsor uh, of Davis Cup as well. Um, so there's a lot of Japanese money that's coming in there. And obviously that paves the way for eventually kind of the appetite that then coats out of control once Naomi does what she does. 
but but K really was kind of the first, and I think that because of K, you do see the young the young Chungs, and you do see kind of more of like because male Asian though Asian tennis as a collective is is a thing on the women's side, like a very very tangible thing. Um, it's it's just not on the men's side, but I feel like K was the was again the tip of the spear that maybe hopefully uh, in twenty twenty we start to see kind of more players come up and come through. Yeah, K is somebody for me who I feel like his legacy is in that sort of influence way is incomplete. Like I could easily see myself if Asian men's tennis does have a big decade, both business wide and on the court, in the twenty twenties, I could see myself making a new twenty tens list a few years later that had K on it and higher on it it's just like for me i was not totally convinced that especially compared to lena and osaka um that k's business influence was as strong yet in terms of really shaping his tour so um because there's only still the one at there's only one atp event in japan still fair enough yeah that's fair yeah so um anyway so that was i did think about k but he was a uh, i consolidated him into dimitrov ultimately my number six is uh, a player who's never been in the top 10, um, is Nick Kyrgios. He's my number six. Oh, super. <laughs> awesome. I was figuring he had to be on your top 10. Of course, yeah. Ditto. I, I, I just think that like Nick is like the biggest conversation starter, like heated conversation starter in men's tennis by far this decade. He's a conversation and, like, hijacker. I mean, oh, absolutely. He, you know what I mean? Like that is, that's his, that's his power, his influence. And, and like, and he just like he to me like brings up all these really existential questions about what tennis is and what it wants to be and what it doesn't want to be. I mean, like, does tennis want to be like cool? I mean, because Nick is interesting on that because Nick would like tell you that tennis is affirmatively not cool, but then he would show you that it is by like how he makes it look and what he can do out there, and and he does this in this often like very clunky like contradictory way sometimes he's not always coherent in how he expresses himself and how he expresses feelings about tennis and how he goes about his things but i think but so often he was like along with serena i would say the only thing in tennis that would like ever get discussed on like pti or like general mainstream american sports things and again this is an australian guy who was never in the top 10 who never came close to winning a grand slam really but he still was like that much of as Beyonce says that bitch caused on all that conversation. I mean, like he was the you know guy who like was just irresistible to thinkers about the sport, people with opinions on the sport. And you know, we're about to go to Australia, and I'm sure you've had this this moment in Australia too, where you like meet an Australian, whether like a transport driver or an Airbnb host or whatever, and they'll like you say, or someone on your flight even, you'll say, oh, I'm going down to cover the tennis. And they'll be like, oh, you know, oh, I love tennis. I like so-and-so. But what they're really eager to tell you is how they don't like Curios. <laughs> they'll be like, oh, yes, 100%, I like Federer. Yes. And then, but then they'll immediately turn and like, and Curios and Tomic, like, I really don't like them. And they think their opposition to Curios, is, they think is more important to who they are as tennis fans than their appreciation of other players. And he's just that kind of definitional in that way. And honestly, I haven't six. I mean, I could argue for him to be higher Although the top four is really tough to crack in this in this decade, but probably ahead of Vavrinka, I think it's probably fair in retrospect. But yeah, I mean, the other thing is it can be interesting with him. Like, I am super fascinated to see how Curios influences younger generations because having been around him more this year at tournaments, like kids love him. 
yep. kids gravitate towards Kyrios so so much because he really I mean he's relatable to them. He acts like a, a child so often too in in terms of his fun and his you know you know sinusoidal maturity levels and things like that. And and it's gonna be really interesting to see how Kyrios's influence comes along. Uh, later on because I feel like even if his career isn't that much longer on tour we have no idea like what he sort of has inspired and if he does if he did inspire people to play and to follow his footsteps it could be a really really interesting uh, legacy and path that the Curious plays so he's he's number six and, and yeah and he was the other one you mentioned and maybe you were alluding to him when you were talking about Favrinka but like he was this very or Ferrer even maybe it was what I was thinking of Curious when you're talking about him like yes. he was this alt- alternate path for how to challenge the big four like Ferrer was very much doing things like for lack of better, this like very spanish very like almost ironically australian way of like being a good sportsman and trying your best and going out there and running down every ball but then curios was like taking the absolute piss out of it and having better results honestly against the big four than than Ferrer did on a regular basis i mean he beat all of them on his first or beat the big three all on his first try and like that's just like that can't be discounted like how good he was against the best guys and how his crazy recipe ill-advised as it was in any sort of chemistry lab like really to get some really crackling results so often so um yeah one of the most fascinating and maddening and divisive and polarizing players uh you know in, in yeah of, of the decade for sure nick curious hundred percent and i think that you know i think you hit on all the points i just add that yeah he 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 is a rule breaker on every level, like the actual rules, <laughs> but also just like what we as as tennis fans and people who have grown up, particularly in the Roger Federer era, and I've mm-hmm. used this term before, the Roger Federization of tennis, and you know, like this idea that has overtaken the sport. We can all argue whether it's for better or for worse. It's probably for better. But extremes are always bad. There's no such thing as an extreme that's good. And then when the needle goes too far and when the only thing that is celebrated by everyone, by tennis players, by commentators, by fans, is classy, like, sportsman-like, always on point, tries super hard all the time, like, whatever. Maybe it's the Ferrerization of tennis. I don't know. But, like, Mm -hmm. if that is the only thing that is valued, then... That's not good. And, and Roger himself says that he wants to see more diversity in that way, that he doesn't want everybody and every player to be that, that, that you know, uh, quote unquote class. Like the, it's a loaded word that gets thrown around whenever anybody does anything good or bad. Oh, that's so classy. Oh, that's classless. It's very loaded and people should be careful about how they use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that Nick breaks all the rules on every level and obviously and we've been on this podcast where we we rip him for it um, when it matters. But outside of that, like, you know, I love what you said because it is something that I I really, for myself as a fan, like I said, like, like when Nick came up, I was still writing for SI, but then like since then, like I've just kind of been watching from afar. But like, I just love the fact that he doesn't try every point. I really do. I think that I, I love that he actually has a game plan out there, honestly. Of like, you know what, this one, I'm just going to isner it. I'm just going to hold my serve. I'm going to beat you in a tie break. That's, that's, that's my plan. And so statistically, really... he's often an isner. It's weird. Right. But people don't talk about him that way, but he is a serve bot often statistically. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And then there are other times where he digs in and he, he plays and he, he rallies and he does all that. The other thing as well with, with Nick is that, how old was he when he beat Rafa? Uh, 
19? Yeah, he was still a teenager, right? I thought he was still a teenager. Yeah, I think he was still a teenager. Yeah. Also, when we start talking about kind of the decade and how it it it, it um, kind of uh, unfolded, he was the first teen that had like a massive result. Like, right? I'm pretty sure. I'm not talking uh, about like you know beating you know somebody at a masters, right. but I like mm, on center court, right. Rafa, like 19 years old, and somebody who like no one was really ever talking about, really. I think like the, maybe the year before was when he had just won AO Juniors, maybe or maybe it was mm-hmm. that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and the way that he did it, and the fun, and the charisma that he brought onto center court that day, I'll never forget that day personally, like forever. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think it's again Nick's impact isn't going to we won't really be able to see until we get out of this decade and get along and see how things get along. But I think one of the things that's really kind of underplayed as well with Nick and his antics and his mouth and all the rule breaking that he does and whatever is that if you follow him on social media and you see the younger generation of players liking his tweets, like like they won't say all those sorts of things, but they absolutely are like, oh yeah, Nick's right. Like about like certain things and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think that his influence will be seen, that there is this, this curious effect amongst the younger generation and it may not manifest itself in racket breaking and cursing and throwing of, of water bottles. Let's hope it doesn't result in codes and all that sort of stuff. Or maybe every once in a while, why not? But um, as Roger said, what did he do? He hurt a chair. <laughs> Through a chair. He injured a chair. <laughs> he injured a chair. You know, like, uh, yeah, I, I think that that I I am more confident that it will, that Nick is going to create this bubble of space for younger the the next generation younger generation players coming up after him or alongside him to be a bit more of an ass when they want to be and i think that actually it's probably good for the sport if that happens when ass is like it's in you know there's like euphemisms there's this great obviously essay i love where you know personality in tennis is just a euphemism for asshole or right right, basically (laughs) um but and, and Nick has that going for him, for sure. Nick absolutely has a mean streak in him, for sure, and can be yeah. very cruel and demeaning to people. Straight up mean. Just straight up mean. <laughs> and absolutely mean. And, like, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> where this is on NCR, it's no secret that the most listened to episode of NCR we had this decade was the Nick Kyrgios episode uh, where he came on in May. And that was resonating with so many people around the Rome, you know, players lounge or, you know, not all, they don't all talking to me about it, but like heard a lot of stuff about that podcast the next day because like people were like agreeing with what he had to say. And he was like, he was like a spokesperson for like kind of the kids in the back of the class who are all like not the ones who fit the narrative. And there can be, that's a, can be a big range of people who at least in some parts of their career identify with that. Who aren't, who don't see, who look at Ferrer, for example, and don't think they can live up to that. And that doesn't look like fun anywhere, like a way they really want to go about their tennis. And they're not as extreme as Nick and not as laissez faire as, and lackadaisical as Nick can be, um, and self destructive as Nick can be, but um, still see parts of themselves in Nick that they want to emulate. So, yeah, I mean, he's, I, he's, yeah, I think... he's Judd Nelson in Breakfast Club. He's he's the guy who has to like show up to prep school in a tie and freaking hates it, and so sits mm-hmm. in the back and is disruptive and gets sent to 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 
you know, the principal's office and gets in trouble and somehow is lighting sh shit in the library on fire. I mean, that's that's <laughs> Nick and it's it's not okay. And I don't think that people should ever think that like the treating of Nick or any player really is ever binary. That person's good, therefore they are not bad. And that person is bad and therefore they are never right. good. You know, like, and I think that, again, like you said at the, at the beginning when discussing Nick, like he's just this very he makes you think about these kind of existential questions about the sport, also about mental health as well, which yep, is something yep. that like has become more and more a conversation and probably really started beginning of the decade, you know, with like Marty Fish, um, if that was the beginning mm -hmm. of the decade, I think it was. Rebecca Marino. Yeah, yeah Rebecca Marino, Bar Marty Fish, um, even Ash. Um, yeah. So more and more that has become an issue. And then obviously Nick, no one talks about it around a player with respect to that topic as much as with Nick. So he's just he's just this lightning rod of so many different topics. So yeah, I mean, at this point, make him the player of the decade for all I care. But just because he's of how much he dominates the conversation, given arguably the paucity of his resume. Yeah. But um, but yeah, Nick Carrios, number six. Yeah, consensus number six, and never been in the top ten in the decade. Like that's pretty wild. Never won a Masters. Never been top ten. Never made a slam semifinal, and yet we like we put him at six comfortably, and are like kind of talking ourselves into putting him higher. Um, <laughs> so, Courtney, my number five is Stan Wawrinka, who we covered already. Who is your number five? My number five is Juan Martin Del Potro. <sighs> yes, I so, did not have Delpo. Well, and the re but this is actually good because the reason why you don't have him is precisely the reason why I have him. I'm I'm and I'm guessing. Okay. Because I think that so much about why I think Del, Potro, Del Potro's influence on the decade is more about his absence. Mm -hmm, and his mm -hmm. absence was constantly a topic. Like there was not really a year that went by, you know, in the decade that, that Delpo wasn't on your mind. That the wistful idea of like, oh, if only he was healthy. He won ATP Comeback, of the, Comeback Player of the Year twice in a single decade. <laughs> I mean, good research, good research. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, and I think that because of that, there's always, you know, when we think about, we talk about the Grigors and we talk about, you know, that whole generation of player who, like, in a lot of ways, they're on, well, he's on my list because of what he didn't do, right? Like, he didn't break through, right? That's what you were saying mm -hmm. with Grigor. It, it's very similar with Delpo. It's like he's so high because it was impossible to ever shake it from the back of your mind that this there was this game changer that was constantly sidelined. And when he played, it was an event, you know, like it was everybody stop what you're doing. Delpo's playing Delray Beach. Delpo, like everybody stop what you're doing. How's his, how's his knee doing? You know, um, had that great win at Indian Wells, like all these sorts of things. And, and he's just, I mean, universally beloved, not universally, I know a few people, but. <laughs> <laughs> we know one person. We know one person. Um, but outside of that, um, yeah, there was just he was he was the rain cloud, I think, on this on this decade. He was the guy that just made you made you sad that he wasn't in there to you, you didn't get to see him mix it up. And I think I don't know if this was the case for everybody, but at least for me, he just was this ghost on the decade in a lot of ways um, and would make an appearance, you know, like materialize, do a thing and then like disappear um, and it always bummed me out. So I had Delpo at number five. Yeah. Very fair pick. Yeah, like I, you you guessed correctly. Like I just ultimately didn't think 
that he if the decade is about him not making a dent that's basically why you're picking him like you're right because that's what he it was a, it was a big what if over the entire decade and he was in and out set such sort of like frequent regular intervals throughout the decade like you know he'd show up be around in 2013 and then be gone and then back later in 2016 and then be gone and you know yeah it just it was never all the way there it was always leaving you wanting more and feeling sad and emo which is also very 2010s so yeah in the feels in the feels in the Who fields. Is your All right. Number four. I so can't now even we think. Get, Who it could possibly I be? Thi- I am wondering. I so I actually having sort of in my mind now realizing kind of overrated Vavrink a little bit. Maybe I was confident we'd have the top, same top five, but now I'm hope I'm wondering if we're the same top four. But if we don't, I'll be kind of excited. Um, but my number four is Andy Murray. Should we just do the four? top four? Like I mean, as well, a group, what, 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 or it, what, is it your is it your number four, Andy? Yes. Okay, let's talk about Andy then. Let's just let's okay. do it step by step. Okay. Okay. So Andy, it was interesting doing these two lists of men's women's lists in parallel because, like, with his resume, Andy could have like very easily been the number two women, like with like almost no, you know, if, if his comparable laurels were on the women's side, he'd be number two, like without a doubt, I think. And Andy would but, be like, flattered, considering the number like, one wow, would be his a- former mixed doubles partner. But he'd also be like, I think you're really underrating Caroline Garcia. Um, but uh, no, one. I think that he's. <laughs> but uh, Andy, like, just being around, having spent, gosh, you know, like, I don't know, six months or eight months or however many long of this decade in Great Britain because of covering tennis. Um, Andy, like, gave Britain, like, a reason to feel good about itself, which I feel like it's so frequently like openly lacking in this really sort of uniquely British way. Um, and he just gave them something to cheer for and like, and just seeing him there, like, and what he represented about, you know, everything that he stood for. I mean, like, I don't need to say all of it, but like the documentary that just came out, we haven't talked about on the show yet. Um, but it's great. And because I'm still uh, crying. It was like, it's, it hits you a lot of different times. And I watched it with a British friend and he was especially touched by it because he said it was like about British people trying to process emotions, which is always something that's, you know, a uniquely, again, British uh, way of doing that or going about that or feeling blocked doing that sometimes. Um, yeah, but Andy was there beginning to end of this decade when we thought it wasn't done. You know, what's interesting about my top 10 is that the only one who's retired is Ferrer and he only retired this year. Like, everyone in this decade who made it on my list, like, had staying power. Like, no one left. And the reason who, the person who had every reason to left and leave and did actually retire and came back is is Andy. Um, so, yeah, it was one of the quickest ever, like, comebacks from retirement ever. Because he was, like, it was, yeah, everything about that documentary is, is great and worth worth seeing. Even as someone who was there, you know, at Australian Open when he stepped away and then at Queens Club when he came back, it was still seeing everything that went in between and his constant unrelenting work ethic. Uh, he puts kind of everybody to shame when he's like fretting about something on the phone. Like then he goes and does the little climber machine some more and then gets back on the phone fretting. And then like his way of like channeling his like idle time into like excruciating workouts is something I cannot relate to in the slightest. So, I mean, Andy, just be uh, like the rest of us and sit and eat. Like what right. are you doing? Come on, man. <laughs> So um, he's like he's so he's so exemplary and, and incredible and but also you know it was amazing once Andy sort of faded uh, in 2017 how quickly the big four turned into the big three and like and how he was so far and away above everyone else but he was also 
it became kind of clear in the end, like very far below the other three. Um, and in this decade, using these decade parameters, I think you could have made an argument for him to be a spot higher. But um, but yeah, Andy at number four, like what he had to do to break it to break it down was truly incredible, and didn't look like fun. <laughs> the documentary yeah. is like, wow, this is this is what it takes. Like this is like this is special. And we described before, it's the best in the mortals and stuff. There were a lot of good sort of career obituaries in January. Uh, but Courtney, I know, I know, Muzz is very special to you. So I'll <laughs> see back their balance of whatever time I had, and let you talk about Andy Murray and why he defined this decade for you. If it were, I mean, obviously, like I'm trying to be as objective about this as possible, which is probably why I put why? Andy. Well, it's why I've put probably Andy at four. Um, but there are a lot of things and a lot of reasons why. I could make an argument, obviously, of him being even higher ahead of any of the the players that I've placed before him, who everybody knows who those three players are. Um, But I think that in addition to everything that you just said, um, I think that Andy is so significant, especially in this last decade, in how he redefined like masculinity in the sport. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's massive. Um, I think that before, I mean, I guess I'll open this question to you. Like before Andy Murray, was the most vocally supportive ATP player of the women Andy Roddick? Yeah, I think so. Right? That's probably true, right? So Andy to Andy, they pick up those torches. I mean, Andy Roddick named his bulldog Billy for all, I mean, after Billie Jean King. Um, but, uh, but Andy started the decade still kind of coming out of the... Uh, early Andy Murray PR days of miserable git, a guy who hated the, who dared not root for the English football team, or sorry, to clarify, who dare make a joke about not rooting for the the England football team. You know, all these sorts of things. Oh, he's so petulant. Oh, this, this, and that. Like he's coming out of all of that, right? Out of the, out of 2007, 8, 9. And he goes into 2010 and that's pretty much, you know, when he starts kind of showing his emotions more on court, where he starts to like, you know, really wear all of the stress and all of the um, the pressure of what he was feeling, kind of put it on his shoulder and he kept going. And one of the, the minor things that I always love about Andy is that it cracks me up that his kind of celebratory move, like without even thinking, is the fetal position. <laughs> like every slam that he's won has resulted on some level of him like crouching down and almost collapsing in upon himself. Like whether it was like stand, I mean, he never like goes and like lies on his side in the fetal position. It's always in like a stand, like on his toes, but it's this crouch, like curling up in a ball, like as though the pressure of the world, like he could finally like collapse into himself or like, I don't know, like it was never really celebratory except for the first Wimbledon. Um, but even then, after that, when he got to the center of the court, he, like, did the thing. So I Second Wimbledon was pretty celebratory. Second Wimbledon was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But, like, but still, when he gets to the center of the court, when he, like, kind of shake, when he's done shaking hands, and he goes to the center of the court and waves, it, like, results in, like, this, like, doubling over oh, yeah. that he does. The squat. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to, like, Rafa, right? Which is, like, far more just, like, I'm the freaking man. Like, you know, arms aloft and, um, and things like that in the center of the court. But um, but yeah, so I always I, I think that that's always been really really interesting. Obviously, hiring Amelie Moresmo oh, as yeah. a coach, massive, and not just massive in the hiring decision, but just how open he was about how that 
the public's reaction to him hiring her, not public, I won't, I won't, but like the press reaction or the pundit reaction of him hiring her, how that opened his eyes to like the sexism the, uh, within it, which he didn't really understand before, and him being very, very open about it, and that, and then really continuing to carry that torch forward, right? Like, you know, playing with Serena, you know, at Wimbledon, and just seeding like she's the she's the goat. I don't know why y'all are talking to me. Like she's the one, you know. Like, just I mean, we mm. can go through all of his greatest hits of like the number of times he went out of his way to show his emotions, which this documentary is included. I mean, there are moments that just like sock you in the gut. Um, in terms of how open and honest he is. Um, and then also just standing up for the ladies and meanwhile busting his butt and doing everything that he could do. And I think the most heartbreaking moment in, in the documentary is when he says like, and he kind of is realizing that this might be it for him, that he might have to retire because his body can't do it anymore. And he says that he thinks it's unfair because he doesn't think he deserves it. He doesn't think that yeah. he deserves like like him of those four guys or anybody to do what he's done and like no stone unturns, no corners cut, that he's gonna be the one that has to hang it up early that because his body betrays him, like that's not fair, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that Andy's impact, I mean, even outside of that, I mean, obviously being the Brit and putting the Brits, the Brit tennis press corps kind of front and center. I mean, he, they traveled everywhere with him. They were, they were there, they were kind of the, the bullhorns um, of, of tennis uh, from the Europeans, mm -hmm. you know, from that side, which is massive. There's just so many. He, the impact is massive. And I think that Andy's a really, really, really prime example of somebody who his immeasurable impact, like, absolutely outweighs his on-court impact. And that's saying something for the guy who everybody sees is like, kind of like the bridge between like the best and the rest. And it says so much about this decade that we can be this emphatic about Andy Murray and this, like, pouring out all this love and affection for him and that he's number four. Like, he doesn't deserve any it. Other, <laughs> in any <laughs> other world, he'd be like, this a number one, like, coronation speech, but Andy is number four. Um, and so with that, let's move on to our number threes. My number three... Um, yeah, first ascertain if you match. My number three is Roger Federer. That is correct. But I had a really hard time because I was very, very close to putting him. Oh, no, wait. No, I put Roger number two. Okay, great. Okay, good. So my number three is Roger Federer. My, my number three is Rafa. Continue. Okay, so that could have, like, this was, this was tough. And this was, like, honestly, at the end, I only, and I could go back and forth on this. But, like. But, like, he is, and this is me talking myself into why he could be higher, but, like, he's the guy in the sport still people go, like, absolutely nuts for. Like, being, you know, around tennis tournaments throughout this decade, like, I have, not that I didn't understand it before, but, like, you really appreciate, like, how much people love Roger Federer. And I know other fan bases will get upset and say it's just the same for their guy or their girl, but it's not. Like, the Roger phenomenon is uniquely the biggest one it's it's him he's the guy and like and it will feel so different when he's gone like it's amazing that roger lasted this entire decade you know and i just don't feel like we know what it's gonna be like without roger i mean like serena we kind of gotten a sense of what the tour will be like post serena because she's had several stretches of absence and she's kind of a part-timer now but like the idea of tennis post federer is 
an unknown. And I think that kind of really scares a lot of people in the business side of the sport. Yeah, I could have argued for him to go higher for those reasons, for still being the guy uh, to fill stadiums and still to be relevant, to start a whole team competition of Labor Cup essentially built around his sort of cult of personality. But the other two ahead of him, who I have ahead of him, did so much more Grand Slam winning that I was ultimately like, I don't know that I can make put Roger ahead of someone who won nine more slams than him. Um, so maybe that's looking too much of the numbers ultimately. But like, if it had been at all close to those margins, I, I could have put Roger at number two or maybe even number one. But like, I just, I couldn't do it. I, I, I thought that, you know, because his decade was the previous decade. He was undeniably the guy of the noughts, of, of the of the zeros, we're going to call the, the first decade of the century. Um, that's his, I think anyone would, would say, in, in a pretty clean sweep. And I just don't think that he, like, won two decades in a row. Maybe he did, but I, I to me, that was not how I ultimately judged it. Courtney, why do you have Nadal at number three? Well, just going off of that, because... Okay, you want to go to Roger out, at number two? Yeah, let's just knock out you Roger. You have Roger at two, right? Yeah. I, I have Roger at number two. Totally 50 yeah. 50 coin flip because the reason why I initially thought that I'd put Roger at three was that my initial list lists it that way. But then when I actually, when I was just like brainstorming like names in order, I had Roger at three. But then when I actually or, like thought about it, then I put him at two. It's that close. And, and, and it just goes, I think, thematically with kind of even like my Delpo thing or, or K uh, being on my list of um, and Stan being as, as low as eight is that I was kind of looking at more off-court impact, obviously. And, yeah. and obviously, and once you go there, I mean, you could argue that Roger's number one. But mm-hmm. that speaks highly as to who, at this point, yeah, I mean, I have Novak number one. But, like, you know, uh, spoiler alert. But spoiler, gosh. That, but that, that, that is a that, – and we'll talk about it, but that's because of what Novak freaking did in this decade. Um, but Roger, I put it number two. One of the big tipping points outside of just his cult of personality and who he is within the sport and his power within the sport, a lot of it does, um, I put a lot of weight on the, on the whole Labor Cup thing. I think that having the, the power, the influence to, to set up that sort of competition to, according to many people, really kind of like reintroduce or reconceptualize the idea of team competition and to show that people are interested in team competition now I would push back on that and only say people are interested in Roger, but and the because he's Roger, the people he he could get to play it. So I'm not sure that standing alone without Roger it works. But oh gosh, and, and like on the Roger side of the Latin America tour he just did, oh, selling yeah. out enormous stadiums with the um, guy Justice who I had, for you had not on your list. I'm <laughs> no Justice for Zverev on that, but yes. But yes, I mean break. I mean that Mexico City thing was unbelievable. And that's the power of Roger Federer. And that's why when he speaks, it matters. That's why, you know, I think it's really great that he, you know, going back to this, the discussion of Kyrgios, that he's kind of come out and kind of defended Nick in in small moments where, and, and also made it a point to kind of push back on this narrative that somehow he, you know, everybody should be like him. He's like, no, like I want, like there should be diversity in personalities and, you know, all that. And the rule breaking is fine. And who gives a crap? Like it, credit to Roger for saying all that. Um, but I just think that he is still the lifeblood of of the men's tour. He's still the most influential tennis player, man or male or well, yeah, most influential <laughs> tennis player, male or female. Only because I think Serena is obviously ab- inordinately um, influential, like dwarfs him in terms of her influence in America. But I think globally, yeah, yeah, Roger yeah. is more of a global influencer 
probably. I agree with that. Um, but uh, but yeah, and so and again, going back to the whole Delpo thing uh, or or Dimitrov, so much of what made Roger for me a number two was that so much of the the tapestry of the two thousand and tens he was woven into because of what he didn't do and what it took for the other players who stopped him from doing those things to do to kind of elevate themselves and elevate their careers and become you know the players that they are in Novak and Rafa but um but yeah no so so but I I think I I just couldn't shake despite you know um him Obviously, what was it that I found? Hold on, let me look through my notes here. There was something that I was like, oh. my oh, gosh, paperwork, wow. Oh, do you hear it? Do you hear my field notes? Let's see, slams, no, that wasn't it. Oh, that that um, Roger didn't win ATP Player of the Year in the 2010s, which I didn't realize. Never, huh, yeah. huh. Novak won it five times, Rafa won it four times, Andy won it once. So is Roger never year at number one then? I guess that's right. I guess not. Uh, someone could. I'm sure some Roger fan is immediately like freaking out that we got that wrong. But if we did get that wrong, but yeah, that sounds right. Huh. I, I mean, according to Wikipedia, so I I looked it up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, but yeah, so I yeah. get it. Hmm. Like, but 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 he was always, you know, outside of injury and things like that. He he set a lot of the the narrative, and and you can't argue with that. So I had him at number two. Um, All right. Number three that I ha- my number three. Yeah. So we'll get to Nadal now. Who I have at two yes. and you have at three. There yeah. you go. So the mystery is gone. Um, but uh, yeah, I had Rafa at I mean, uh, at number three. I mean, I could sit here and read off stats. I don't think that I necessarily need to. I mean, can I do some quick stats on Rafa? I mean, because, fire away, like, please. So he won. I was surprised in looking at this up that like Rafa won. 13 of his 19 slams in this decade i would have not thought that like his balance of when he did most of his winning was shifted as relatively late in his career as it has been because i think people talk about him like coming on so strong and then sort of fading but like he was a better player by a lot in terms of his strike rate in the 2010s and granted he only won his first grand slam in 2005 so he skews more into this decade than i thought he did yeah he had uh, six he had six in the 2000s yeah and then yeah and And then 13 13 13 and, and and you know he was the dominant player at the french open he like owned that tournament and when you own one grand slam that much that's like a lot of definition when you when one grand slam is defined by you that clearly that's a lot and then on top of that he won more u.s opens than anybody else in this decade too and so for him to like be the king of like two grand slams is pretty crazy and, and you know the u.s open thing is was very different than the french open thing the french open was like his and the U.S. Open, it felt a couple times like he just kind of managed to be the last guy standing, like things broke his way. But that even still is defying expectations because I think Nadal is another person who, you know, 12 years ago, no one would, would have thought was the year and number one in 2019. Like everyone talked about how he's going to be gone. And he is de- definition or symbol of how the eras really did not change. Like even more than Federer sort of. Federer kind of always had this timelessness to him, but Rafa didn't. Rafa was not supposed to last as long as he has. And he really has proven to be this immovable, you know, object that people just cannot get past time after time. He's still there, still winning these things. And so he, to me, is the avatar for, for longevity even more than Federer, even though he's significantly younger. And he does it in this way that I think really represents 
you know, sort of the extremes of even more than the, than Ferrer. All the things people say about Ferrer, people say about Rafa um, even more, because ultimately, because Rafa actually wins big titles. And and yeah, and sort of it was interesting. You mentioned uh, how Murray changed how people look at masculinity, and I think Rafa was the counterweight to that. Rafa was like very traditional masculinity, and what oh, like yeah. he and 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 Novak did in their 2012 Australian Open final, which is another one of the iconic matches of the decade. Uh, for better or worse, I would say for much worse. Um, like that's that was just like that's that matches pure toxic masculinity. Honestly, <laughs> like guys, it's like for six hours just going at it over and over and over again. It was just like, oh, we get it. Like you're like big and strong and won't give up. Like it's taking six hours. Like come on, move along. That was a match that you know I think probably got me shifting away from best of five. It was the first Grand Slam I ever covered, so it was a pretty quick shift. Um, yeah, I mean, like he, yeah, he represented a bunch of different things, and and he was just. He was that good, and and yeah, I don't think he has the the sort of he hasn't he hasn't tested his business acumen the way Federer has per se. But I feel like if it was out there for him, he could have. And I don't, I just don't think he has the, the quite the pull that Federer has. And you know, when there's like a full stadium at Indian Wells, which is like a neutral court, like it's reliably pretty much rooting for. It's not you know ninety ten, but it's reliably probably pro Federer most places when they meet up. Um, so Federer kind of wins on that front, but Nadal, yeah, like the amount of winning and dominance and controlling the sport and making sure the sport did not move away from him. He felt like the one really like anchoring it into the big four era. He was the one who was like the boulder, like keeping it in place that the other guys just could not move or roll away or break through. That was Nadal to me. He was the one who like made this, this era as yeah unchanging as it was wasn't it all yeah i can't i can't argue with any of those points i mean it's it's absolutely true um yeah i mean like rafa yeah the narrative going into the 2010s surrounding him surrounding his knees surrounding his health can he physically do what uh, is required to play the way that he plays for the next you know five years let alone ten years the jury was out and and he transformed and and he was able to you know manage his schedule uh smartly i would argue um you know in terms of of i don't know i mean i i'm not as much part of atp twitter i have no idea but like whether or not people think that it was like oh he was like legitimately genuinely incapacitatingly injured so he couldn't have played a full schedule all the time or whether or not it was like I'm feeling aches and pains. You know what? It's not worth it, which is like smart sometimes. Um, it's, 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 that's a really important Rafa question, I think, honestly, especially looking back at this decade as a whole. And this, this is a harsher term than I want it to be like, but almost how much of a reliable narrator he is on his injuries. Because like we, he was so often talked about as if he was on like his very last legs, literally. Yeah, and, no, that's. Yeah, he's, here, yeah. here he still is in 2019 being number one. So like. There's a certain grain of saltness to it that I have in retrospect that I some I sort of developed more over the course of the decade, but yeah, like it's I'm gonna be, you know just watch out for that in the 2020s. <laughs> People are like, wow, Rafa's like really like he was down and out. It's like Tom Brady does this too, where it's like every time it's like they counted me out every time they count me out. No one said I could do it. It's like that didn't happen, Tom slash Rafa. Like right, yeah. We know you're, we know you're good. You're good. Just own it. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I I'm not. I'm not saying one thing or the other i'm just saying i don't know because the yeah. only evidence that i would have is what he oh, said and i don't necessarily believe i don't know why pe- i've said it before i don't know why people think that like when players sit at the dais or give an interview that they're under oath 
they're not. Like they can say whatever they want, you know, and, and we can all, you know, read into or not read into, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, but, but anyways, nobody really thought that he was going to be able to do what he did. He did it. Uh, yeah, like when you were describing kind of him, I liked the, the way you said it, kind of like he, he prevented the game from moving away from him. Uh, I think mm-hmm. is, is really apt and like the the mental picture that I had was like, you know, Captain America like holding, like straining to hold two things together uh, as they were drifting apart. And, and that was in a lot of ways the way, you know, what people think of with Rafa um, is that kind of mentality, that that type of athletic masculinity, right? Like, oh, that guy's like, he's just such a dude. <laughs> the way that he plays his, his tennis, um, the way that he is. And um, and yeah, I, I, I respect it a heck of a whole lot for sure. But uh, but yeah, he was my he was my three. He was your two. And then our consensus number one, the sort of social network of this uh, episode, <laughs> um, which I was, I was surprised. I was talk, we were talking about this when we listened to the uh, the Ringer podcast, Best Picture podcast, about their top ten movies of the decade, which somewhat inspired the format of this these episodes we're doing. Um, I was surprised. I did not realize that they were going to have all three of the hosts on that episode. We're going to have social network as number one, but there's no. I'm not surprised at all. I would have been very surprised if either of us did not have Novak Djokovic as number one for the decade. I mean, this really was like his decade. And like the stats, the numbers are actually not as far ahead of Rafa as I thought they were going to be. I mean, he won 15 slams to Rafa's 13. So that gap is not enormous, but like he just felt like this, like real, like the guy to beat from, from pretty much jump of this decade. I mean, we're from 2011 anyway, once he announced himself in 2011 as the guy unseating Rafa to do that. And then he just would perennially (laughs) every once in a while, when you know four slams in a row come close and just like have this way of turning it on and being dominant and bankable and reliable and like not and, and interestingly in this sort of like 2010s you know larger cultural way like unlike Nadal and unlike Federer especially Federer but like he was not the he was not the people's champion he was not, I'm just say, I mean, like, he knows this, everyone knows this. Like, he was not the champion who fans were clamoring for, but he was the one they got and deserved. And, like, in this world where people seem, like, increasingly dissatisfied with a lot of things, like Novak Djokovic is kind of the perfect tennis avatar for Woo! the decade. Woo, that sounds harsh to everyone involved. But, uh, but, you know, like, I, I do think that he was, like, his pure force of will was, like, he was, like, no, he was, you know, in terms of, you have Rafa as this, like, big Captain America hulking muscle guys. He was, almost, I don't watch Marvel stuff at all, so I can't really tell you who, <laughs> who who Novak was. But more like a sort of, like, Hermes and Greek myth figure, like, flitting around, kept, you know, raining everything in or playing tricks and just doing something to, like, always constantly outsmart people. And that, like, and that Novak, in this decade of, like, weird results, that Novak won five Wimbledons is so absurd. This, like, baseline-y, splitsy, you know, sliding guy became the dominant grass quarter shows, like, how much this decade got hacked by him, that he was able to do that. And that he was, you know, his, yeah, he was just so bankable and so disruptive. And when it came to the battles among the big three, he was the one who came out on top. Like, his record against, like, top five guys, top ten guys is so so good bonkers. and like he was just such a great big match player like dom- demonstrated so well by well i mean obviously he did lose some big matches too but like his two grandstand final wins this year in two very different fashions um the one in australia where he absolutely just 
demolished at all. Kind of out of no, I don't. I think people were pretty shook by how lopsided that win was this year. And then in <laughs> in Wimbledon, where he had every reason to lose to Federer, and Federer had it all wrapped up and had two match points. And Djokovic was like, "Let's see for the third time how bad I, you know, uh, <laughs> save match points against or championship. These were these were championship points this time." U.S. Open, he twice saved match points before against Federer. Uh, yeah, like, there's just sort of this inevitability about him and this control and, like, confidence and, and bankability he had. And it did go off the rails sometimes. There were some spectacular Djokovic collapses and crashes from, like, the small ones against, like, Dennis Istomin in Australia to, like, the bigger ones with Query and, you know, that really big lull he had for a while when he fell out of the top 20, I think, like... There were. It was not. He was the one of the of the uh, big three who had the lower lows of the three, but like his his rebound ability was was pretty incredible. And yeah, he's. It just felt like his time. Like this was his his decade. I think pretty clearly. Yeah, I, I just don't think that there's any way around it. And when you were making MCU analogies, I thought, well, he's basically Iron Man in terms of like kind of like this self made. Just, yeah, just like refusing in a lot of ways to kind of like let things spiral out of his control and doing everything that he could to kind of wrench things back. But then you said he felt inevitable and then I thought he was Thanos. So I don't know. But uh, <laughs> that's my I don't get those analysis. analogies, but I'm sure they're great. It's cool. Yeah. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, but I don't go to uh, but yeah. Parks. I mean, the numbers are crazy. I mean, Chris Otto at the fan child, our buddy Chris, uh, crunched hey, the Chris. numbers on Tennis Abstract and he tweeted, Novak Djokovic, in this decade, went 80 and 38 against top five. Rafa Wait, was 49 so and 38, and Federer was 47 and 41. Mm. I mean, that's massive. 80 and, and 38, then, that's, that's unreal. Unreal. Against top five. Yeah. Over 10 years. And he was 10 and 5 against number one ranked players. Rafa was 8 and 12. Federer was 7 and 16. Wow. That's a big one. Yeah, that's even I when mean, he I was saw those one, numbers. He was beating number one. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Like he was nuts, right? He goes into the 2010s with one major, right? 2008 Australian Open. He wins 15 in 2010. That's how many Roger won in the 2000s, I think. He's the only one of the guys to win the decade slam, the decade Grand Slam. Like in the last 10 years, he won one of each, mm. Mm. which the other guys mm. didn't do. Uh, let's see, what else? He won five World Tour Finals. Uh, oh no, four this year. Four in the decade. He got a jo- Jokimon. Yeah. He got the Jokimon, the, the, the Grand Slam thing. Uh, or the Grand Masters. Grand Masters. He won 29 Masters. He went into this decade having won five. He, or oh, he won 29. Yeah. Rafa came in winning 15. He won 20. Fed came in winning 16 in the 2000s. He won 12. So Novak won 29, Rafa 20, Fed 12 in 2000. I mean, it's like, it is, yes, it is arbitrary that, like, Djokovic's career peak fit into the parameters of this decade, 2010 to 2019, more cleanly than Nadal, say, or Federer. But, like, yeah, one, because he didn't, he didn't get to number one before this decade. Right, but I mean, like, we're not talking about whether it's fair uh, right. or whatever that he's, right. like, he just it's is. Just I mean, he, yeah. you know, like, I mean, it's undeniable. And uh, so that's the on-court stuff, which I think, I mean... There's just no argument that he's the player of the decade on court. But even off court, I think that a lot is not made of kind of like his impact off court. He was one, you know, Novak has always loved to really talk. He's a great, he's a good quote. He talks for pages. 
Um, but he, uh, he talks for pages. I don't know if he's always a good quote. But he fair talks enough. For pages, fair yes. enough. Agree to disagree or agree, whatever. I don't, I don't have a horse in the race. I don't care. He, he is <laughs> tough to put into stories often. I will say back in, Yes. Back in the day when I had to transcribe him or like pull a quote, it was tough. It was tough. You're right. Yeah. It's um, tough. But I think that, um, you know, early, in a lot of ways, he was a harbinger of things to like, he was vocalizing things that eventually became true early in the decade saying like i i you know the, the the world tour finals should move that you know there it should pop around now i don't know if like moving to italy although i don't think that he minds because italians really like him like he's like a proud favorite in rome um, bt dubs this entire italian takeover the atp that's happening i know it's kind chairman of chairman and the ceo i did it's not see chow, it coming i did not see italian. it coming um yeah, yeah it, it just seemed like yeah it was i have so many weird i'm just very confused by the italian takeover not that it's a bad thing i just like didn't see that the power shift at the ATP would be going to Italy? I mean, I hope for... Yeah, I don't know. It was a, it was a twist. But, um, Yannick Sinner, baby. But, yeah, I was going to say, the power of Yannick Sinner. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, just in terms of that sort of stuff, his involvement on the ATP Player Council, people can get mad, people can be supportive, etc. But he has changed, <laughs> and or at least contributed as much as he possibly could, changed kind of the, the makeup of things on the ATP side, the business side, um, really encouraging kind of a li- little bit more of a globalized uh, view of tennis, really being an advocate for prize money, all these sorts of things. Like the dude tried to like basically like like unionize. Yeah, unionize, which isn't like I said, I think I've said in the past, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's not a, that's not necessarily a bad idea. I don't know if it's doable, but like, okay. Yeah. You know, but um, he also kept the ATP there being like some unresolved tension on like the whole equal prize money WTA thing, having him as the president of the player council who was, you know, tacitly against equal prize money for ATP and WTA. Nadal was too. It was an interesting big four thing that two of them were much more supportive of WTA than the other two. Which was not a mystery. I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things over the course of time, I don't think that the way that everything's broke down. Like, I don't think it's a mystery, but I, I think that it's like, I think that it's interesting. I think it would surprise people in 2019, outside of tennis and like progressive America, let's say, in 2019, that two of the ATP top four, like, don't think the women should get paid equally. I, that would take people aback. Well, you know, Ben, male models. I was. <laughs> Who will think Justice of them? Justice for the male models. Who will defend them, Ben? I don't know. Like OnlyFans or something? You, l- you learn things when you're on the set of a Shakira video. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Novak is my number one. Um, it's just, I mean, absolutely bonkers decade from him. And, you know, I will, I, I stand by what I, I think I tweeted this at some point. I don't remember when, but just like, I really do hope that when Novak's career is done, that his memoir is just titled, You Made Me. Like, that's it. And I, and as like, just an observer of everything, I fucking love it. I love so much that like everything about Novak as we finish the 2010s and head into the 2020s, so much of it is like a very pure, almost like primal reaction to like no one wanting him to get it, right? Like we go into this decade and he, yeah, he won 2008 Aussie, but whatever, there's gonna be like Roger Rafa and maybe those two guys, but like, like he's been forged under everything and it's like a reaction to everything that he's been he's had to deal with and i i'm not even bsing this at all i respect the hell out of it 
Like, it's kind of weirdly ballsy and badass. My favorite Novak moment is the dot. In the 2014 dot. World oh, my God, Finals the dot. When he, when he was seething, the crowd was supporting Nishikori over him and then just signed the camera with a dot and walked away. I fucking love it. I really, really do. I'm not bullshitting at all. Like, that is that is a Novak I have always really, really liked. Was the dot Novak. That's the anger of the 2010s right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he still had, you know, it was a more innocent version of it. But back in the aughts of, like... You know, he was the disruptor. And that's the story of, like, the 2010s with Novak. Is like, Novak Djokovic, the disruptor. He was there to break everything up. And people wanted, whoever the people, quote-unquote, were, wanted tennis to be a thing, a certain thing, and Novak wouldn't let it be that. And he claimed his space like a freaking battering ram. And I, I, I really, I respect the shit out of it. <laughs> As do I. And that is our list of the 10 dudes. Uh, who are the most defining 10 ATP players of the 2010s. Courtney, thank you for talking about 10 dudes with me and some bonus dudes. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back with the uh, the women soon. Yes. This is fun. List making is, it's, it, this, this was nice. I, I enjoyed our first attempt at this. The women's, I feel like, the women's is different because I feel like there's also like no wrong answers, even more so with the women. Yes. But also like more ways to go wrong and there are more people who'll be left out you're like how could you leave this person out with women i feel like so, yeah i feel like in, with uh, the women there's gonna be way more people who think that people got snubbed I, you couldn't put all the slam champs in the top 10 first of all for basic starters uh, spoiler alert next app next app well i'm saying there, no i'm saying there's like more than 10 <laughs> just more than 10 of them i'm just saying anyway we will leave you with that thank you guys for listening to no challenges remaining episode uh 238a of this uh follow along with us on our Twitter at NCR underscore tennis, send us questions, emails, and your own lists to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Leave us reviews and stuff on iTunes. We've gotten a bunch of like really negative reviews lately on iTunes. I was looking. Um, the last like 10 have been not great. So like if you Mom, like us, stop. you know, br- bring up our, uh, <laughs> bring up our average. It was a lot of people being mad about the curious interview mostly. And then just no one, we don't get that many reviews. The influence kind of he has. Thing. I tell you, honestly, number six, hardly. More like one star. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, leave us reviews if you want to. We appreciate that. We're on Spotify now, too, which is a thing that, like, is of the 2010s and cool and whatever. Uh, So that's good, I guess. And, yeah, uh, we will be back with the uh, women's top ten list. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.